From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. You have election deniers, you know, stop the stealers running for secretary of state in Georgia, in, in Arizona, and elsewhere. And, and you're putting them in a position, if they're elected, to actually have the pin on certifying results. What's going to happen in 24? That's Chris Krebs. He's the former director of CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at DHS. CISA was established in 2018, and as director, Krebs dedicated much of his time to strengthening the physical and cybersecurity of America's voting systems. He also spoke out against election-related misinformation, which ultimately cost him his job. In the days after Joe Biden was declared the winner of the 2020 election, Krebs testified before the Senate. The 2020 election was the most secure in U.S. history. He was fired by former President Trump, who was then in the early stages of perpetuating the big lie. Now he's a founding partner at the Krebs Stamos Group, a firm that helps companies and organizations navigate threats to cybersecurity. Krebs joins me to discuss the great Facebook shutdown of October 2021, election security, and why voting by phone might not be such a great idea. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for the show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him. The sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield. So he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. It's time for some listener questions. This question comes in an email from Becky, who asks, Are there any tea leaves to be read from the news that Joel Greenberg, Representative Matt Gates's former associate, has asked a federal judge to delay his sentencing? What kinds of information could he be providing to prosecutors? Becky, that's a good question. People will remember that Joel Greenberg is someone who pled guilty to a series of crimes. He faces a mandatory minimum sentence of 12 years in federal prison. But he appears to be cooperating. In fact, we know he's cooperating because it has come out in court proceedings. The significance of cooperating and providing substantial assistance with respect to investigations of other people, including Representative Matt Gaetz, is pretty much the only way that Greenberg can get out from under the mandatory minimum sentence of 12 years. Now, what's interesting is the timeline here. At one point, Greenberg was scheduled to go to trial. On the eve of trial, he pled guilty. And then after you plead guilty to a crime in federal court, you get a sentencing date scheduled. Once upon a time, that sentencing date was August 19th of 2021. In advance of that sentencing, Joel Greenberg, in consultation with prosecutors and in agreement with prosecutors, asked for an adjournment of that so he could continue to provide substantial assistance through cooperation. 
And we've seen that happen a second time now. So instead of a sentencing taking place on November 18th of 2021, they've asked for that to be adjourned now to March of 2022. Now, that's not at all unusual in situations of cooperation. And what it means is prosecutors seem to be happy and satisfied with the information that Greenberg is giving them, probably with respect to Matt Gates. Does that mean there will definitively be a prosecution of someone else, Gates or anyone else, based on the cooperation of Greenberg? Not necessarily, but I will tell you, based on the multiple adjournments and the amount of time that has passed and prosecutors' seeming happiness with what's going on, the likelihood is quite high. People may be asking what takes so long. Witness comes in, tells what he knows about someone else, and that's that. It's not always so simple as that. Sometimes the information is complicated. The most important thing you need with a cooperating witness, especially someone like Joel Greenberg, who is himself someone who has credibility problems and has pled guilty to his own crimes, is corroboration. And corroboration sometimes takes time. So for example, the cooperating witness like Greenberg might say something about a financial transaction or about a meeting or a communication, and it might take prosecutors some time to subpoena and find those communications to corroborate what Greenberg is saying. So I suspect some combination of the volume of information being provided and the need to meticulously corroborate that information is what's leading to the delay. Bottom line is, bad news for Matt Gates. This question comes in an email from Serge, who asks, were you surprised by DOJ's announcement that it is reviewing its decision not to prosecute the FBI agents who botched the Larry Nasser investigation? Have you seen something like this happen before? Of course, Serge is referring to the disgraced former USA gymnastics doctor who sexually molested and abused hundreds of his patients, some of whom were world-famous gymnasts. As you may recall from Stay Tuned and from other sources, on two separate occasions, both when Donald Trump was president and then again when Joe Biden became president, the Department of Justice made a decision to decline prosecution with respect to two FBI agents who were excoriated in an inspector general report, but basically said the FBI botched the investigation of Larry Nasser. Complaints were made to particular FBI field offices. Information wasn't shared. And then more ominously, it was alleged in the IG report that the FBI agents made false statements in connection with their investigation, and that can lead to criminal prosecution. So lots of people, including Senator Blumenthal of the Judiciary Committee, have been quite critical of the department, wondering why it is that there hasn't been a prosecution, why it is that there was that declination. Now, as you also may know from hearing me talk about legal cases over the last number of years and from reading my book, Doing Justice, it is a difficult thing to explain why you declined to prosecute a case. There are also circumstances in which, given the lack of public faith and the concern that Americans may have, that maybe there was a declination because of a too close relationship with respect to a component of DOJ itself, maybe the declination of prosecution wasn't in good faith. Now, I doubt that's the case, but that's a concern people have. Lisa Monaco, my friend and our former colleague, both in the Justice Department and at CAFE, the Deputy Attorney General, came before the Senate Judiciary Committee and revealed that there hasn't been, apparently, a final, final decision not to prosecute those agents, and that new information has come to light, and the investigation is ongoing and continues. That does not mean that DOJ will make a decision to prosecute them, but it means that it's still a possibility. What I find kind of interesting about that is, generally speaking, DOJ does not make pronouncements about investigations that are open and that are not completed. But I take it here, given the totality of the circumstances, the concerns that senators and ordinary people have had about why DOJ declined prosecution, that she made in her discretion the decision to have more transparency with the committee and with the American public 
And I think in these particular circumstances, that's a good thing. And we'll see what happens. This question comes from Twitter user at Adam Travis G, who asks, do you care that Facebook was down? Answer, no. Well, look, that's speaking for me personally. As you'll hear in my interview with Chris Krebs, it does pose a question and it causes people to wonder whether a very significant corporation, whether you like Facebook or not, millions and millions and millions of people rely on it. They rely on applications that are owned by Facebook, including WhatsApp and Instagram. WhatsApp, in fact, as Chris and I discuss, is the necessary tool of communication for many people in many countries in the world. And you wonder how vulnerable a monolith like Facebook is. That causes a concern. Is it too big? But we'll get to that in the interview in a few minutes. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. For a lot of folks, smartphones are a necessary expense. So if there's an option for you to pay a little less money and pay it less often, well, that just might be worth taking. Mint Mobile offers premium wireless plans that range from three months to six months to a whole year. So you don't need to worry about a monthly bill. And they're affordable. Their plans start at just 15 bucks a month and you get unlimited talk and text and 5G data. They have great rates whether you're buying for one or for a family. And at Mint, family plans start at just two lines. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this show comes from DraftKings Sportsbook. The big game is almost here, and DraftKings Sportsbook has you covered with a brand new offer. New customers can bet on the big game and turn 5 bucks into 200 instantly in bonus bets. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code PREET. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get 200 instantly in bonus bets. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 58, with code PREET. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash football for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsibility. Gaming resources. My guest this week is Chris Krebs. He was the director of CISA, an agency focused on cybersecurity at DHS. He was fired by Trump after establishing that the election was not, in fact, rigged by widespread election fraud. Now he's a founding partner at the Krebs Stamos Group, consulting on issues of cybersecurity, of which there are plenty. Chris Krebs, thanks for joining us on the show. Hey, Preet, thanks for having me on. I understand you're in Vegas. We're going <laughs> to violate the principle that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas because this is all being put out wide distribution. So sorry about that. Is there any confession you want to make? 
No, no, no. It's it's uh, <laughs> it's all normal here in Vegas, which is really surreal. But it, it's funny, you know. I saw you in L.A. Yeah. last week. I, this is, I think, my fifth or sixth week on the road, and most of them have been West Coast trips. So, like, road warrior status is, uh, you know, achievements unlocked. And here we are, back, kind of almost pre-COVID. Is everyone wearing a mask at the blackjack table? Oh yeah, they're pretty. So at the Mandalay, at least, they were the security teams were. We're pretty rigorous. If you're on the casino floor, um, at least for the um, less than 60 minutes, I was on the floor last night. They so they're enforcing uh, mask rules. <laughs> hey, I had a keynote I had to give this morning, and it was my first keynote in like a year and a half, two years. And I was like, do I remember how to do this? <laughs> right. No guardrails. Would it help if you had a laptop in front of you and just looked into the cam? Oh no, I can't. I I see. First off, like nobody wants to listen to a single individual spout off for 30 minutes. Except on this podcast. (laughs) Look, this is like a fireside chat where it's engaging. It's back and forth, but like a person sitting there on a screen. So anyway. So we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, October 5th. And I guess I I need to ask you, given the events of yesterday, did you miss Facebook for the many hours it was down? Did you get along without it? Did you survive? So I was actually on a plane, right? I had Wi-Fi connectivity. So I kind of saw this spiraling out over another social media platform, Twitter. Um, but but it was it was pretty surreal, right? Particularly if you think about the events of Sunday evening in 60 Minutes and the whistleblower. The thing I saw at Facebook over and over again was there were conflicts of interest between what was good for the public and what was good for Facebook. And Facebook over and over again chose to optimize for its own interests, like making more money. But to see this platform, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and then kind of the third-party dependencies they have across the e-commerce community and then their identity authentication measures. Like, it was crazy to see the impact on the the global e- uh, the internet ecosystem. As someone whose expertise is in, among other things, cybersecurity, do you immediately think when something like that happens that it was nefarious and it was some bad third-party actor? So, yeah, I mean, I so first off, I'm paranoid. <laughs> Um, I think you kind of <laughs> yeah. have to be paranoid to be in these jobs and be successful. In fact, I had a nickname um, at at DHS, at least in the early days, with uh, some of the leadership there. My my nickname was Catastrophic Krebs. That's, a long, <laughs> so, that's long for a nickname. It yeah, sure yeah, but I, like I you know you see these things um, happen, and you're first off, it's like it's too coincidental. It happens just after you know. Is there some sort of insider risk or something like that. But you you really have to be disciplined here, particularly in leadership positions that where you have a voice and not throw kerosene on a smoldering or, you know, full burning fire, because that that can lead to a lot of unnecessary unnecessary panic. But but for sure, there was the 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 nagging um, thought in my mind that that maybe somebody was disgruntled, maybe somebody saw the the sixty minutes piece and wanted to kind of shut shut Facebook down off the internet. But but like always, you know, there are a couple key pieces of internet infrastructure and its domain name system and border gateway protocol. Just the way that the routing across the internet works, they Facebook jacked it up with an with an update and then it, they couldn't fix it because they were all remotely deployed. So your best assessment is it was not nefarious. Oh no, and they, uh, you know, whether you believe them or not, you know, they issued a statement. One of their their people issued a statement this morning that said, "No, it was it was not malicious. It was not nefarious." Again, they they had their team distributed, you know, r- working remotely, 
um, they pushed an update to the system and that broke the remote connection. So they actually had to, from what I understand, this is rumor mill here, but they, they had to send a team to a data center. And then, then because the, um, the, the Facebook, um, Inter, uh, the the communications enterprise and the way that they they use their badges to badge in the conference rooms and data centers that was broken too. So they had to actually bring an angle uh, grinder to saw into the data center to get access to manually update the system. So it was just High a tech. catastrophic failure. <laughs> catastrophic cribs. Yeah, there you go. You know, there was a lot of joking about Facebook being down, and then you realize that that among other properties, Facebook owns. WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of places in the world, including the country of my birth and yep. Israel, where I traveled in Palestine, it's basically the essential mode of communication for people among their friends, family, coworkers. I mean, it sort of functions as a utility. Does the fact that all of that can go down so easily based on an error give you any thoughts or pause about the size of Facebook and and the ways in which people should communicate and diversify? So I think we got to separate a few things here, but to your point about WhatsApp, uh, you know, the the thought immediately crossed my mind. That's how I communicate with a bunch of friends that are in the UK, for instance, and Singapore, and to your point, Israel, you know, it it is, it is um, one of the most stable, broadly used, effective in communications platforms, you know, whether you use other things, well, because it's free. People often ask, well, why, why do they use WhatsApp? Why not just text? In lots of places in the world, for the consumer at least, certain apps are free and texting may not be. Right. Um, the, the other issue with texting, right, is that it's, it's, it goes over the, the telephonic infrastructure, the telephony infrastructure, and therefore it does not have, and you know, as a former prosecutor, I'm sure you <laughs> were dealing in the encryption debates. Yes. Um, but you know WhatsApp and Signal and others have that end-to-end encrypted uh, capability that allows for for more private conversations, particularly when you're talking about some of the the countries out there that don't have um, the civil liberties and privacy protections that we have here. You know, it's a good way to get past some of the authoritarian surveillance regimes that are in place. So, what's the solution there? The solution is keep a platform like WhatsApp up and running. (laughs) So, but, but to your bigger point about (laughs) is is there, is there a too big to fail here? I think we are from a technology perspective, I think we're well past the moment of uh, fully understanding and addressing systemic risk um, based on the, the, the various technologies and services that we use, whether it's, um, you know, whether, whether it's a, a cloud infrastructure that, you know, 100% 100% of the federal government runs on, you know, from Microsoft or an authentication measure that runs in small and medium businesses like Facebook. I mean, I think a lot of people probably couldn't log into whatever their, um, uh, their, their newspaper of choice is because a lot of that login is enabled through things like Facebook. And, and so it's, it's a really disruptive cascading effect. And we, we don't, we think about product features and ease of access rather than what happens when this thing breaks? What's my failover? What, you know, what happened to the people that only or primarily contact, you know, communicate by WhatsApp? They couldn't do anything for six hours yesterday. So we got, we have to think about that both from an organizational and infrastructure resilience perspective, but also a personal resilience perspective. Yeah. And look, this time it was six hours. It makes you wonder what if, what if it's for three days? What if that's how businesses take appointments? In, in their communities. And, you know, it's a huge 
rupture to the normal process. So, so I think you're right. So your area of expertise covers a lot of different discrete things. But since we don't have a, we don't have hours and hours, and I could talk to you for hours and hours. What I think is is maybe the most salient thing to talk about, and I know this is close to you, given what you did before and what you continue to do now, and that's election security. Mm-hmm. So very famously, after the 2020 election, when you were still in the government's employ, you said that the 2020 election was, quote, the most secure in American history, end quote. And I know you've talked about this a lot, but I want to ask you, for my listeners, wh- why did you feel compelled to make that statement? It's funny you 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 frame the question that way um, because I was just looking back over something that somebody had sent me a tweet um, uh, earlier today, and I said something to the effect about a, a little over a year, a little under a year ago, rather that you know it was based on the work that we did at CISA, the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency, at at the Department of Homeland Security that was the lead for election security, working with state and local partners that you know under the Constitution, as we've heard ad nauseum over the last year, responsible for uh, administering elections. We knew the work we had put in over three and a half years. And here's just a quick metric, right? Um, In 2016, less than 80% of votes cast in the presidential election uh, had a paper ballot associated with it, which in paper gives you the ability to go back and audit, like a real audit, like what they've done in, in Georgia and Pennsylvania and Michigan, not the fake thing they just did in Arizona, but a real legitimate audit and recount, make sure you've got the right right count. So that was less than eighty percent. There were some systems that were that um, don't have any paper trail at all. They make it really complicated to audit, and therefore, really convincingly, from an evidence based perspective, demonstrate that there was no manipulation or hacking into that system. And, and those systems were in two thousand sixteen in Georgia, notably in Georgia and Pennsylvania. So in the intervening three and a half, four years from 16 to 20, um, that number of paper records associated with a vote went up to about 95%. Now, part of it was due to the increase in uh, mail-in ballots. And in fact, the entire state of New Jersey went to mail-in. Um, but, but specifically, two states, Georgia and Pennsylvania, swapped out those old electronic-only machines to machines and equipment that used a paper ballot or scanned a paper ballot. And, and like, you know, that alone shows that we had confidence in the processes and we had the ability to go back and count it time and time again. Right. And then there's all the other Department of Defense, intelligence, community, law enforcement stuff. Right. No, no, so I get all that. And, and that's a good justification for the statement. But let me ask again, why did you feel the need to make the statement? <laughs> that's two different things, right? Yeah. Why is. did I feel... You know, I had the confidence to make the statement in part because that increase in paper ballots, but also the stuff that I knew to, the Department of Defense was doing and the intelligence community that were, peer, you know, the the eye of Sauron. They were out there looking for interference from Russia and China, Iran and others. We, we you know, we had a good sense of what they were going to do and what their decision calculus was doing. But the reason we made the statement is because we anticipated initially adversaries, Russia, China, Iran and others to try to discredit the processes and claim, absent any legitimate evidence, that there was a manipulation or some other sort of bastardization. Wait, I'm sorry. Your initial thought was that foreign parties would cast aspersions on the security of the election? Yep. Preet, this is the lead up, right? The the planning (laughs) factor, (laughs) the planning- And, and, And just if I'm clear, you made that statement not in response to an inquiry- 
or or a letter from Congress, that was a a, a unilateral expression of confidence in the integrity of the 2020 election. Is that right? Yes. Yep. And so, so, so the next question is, because we know what happened after this, and I'd like you to recount some of the immediate history after you made that statement, were you surprised uh, in any way, given what you've just said, that actually the people casting aspersions on the security, uh, not just the security, but the the fairness and the and the integrity of the election came from Trump followers and supporters? No, no, not at all. And let me, let me kind of separate out two things here. First is when, you know, at CISA, we were focused on the technical challenges associated with administering a safe and secure election. Planning factors, as I mentioned, over three and a half years developed countless scenarios on, on what could be done by a, a bad actor to get in the middle of the process and disrupt it. And so, so we, you know, we worked through all these things, but there, in that, that was both on the technical cyber side as well as disinformation. You know, the perception hacking process. But, but ultimately, when you play out those scenarios, um, they're readily applicable to domestic actors as much as they are uh, foreign actors. So, so again, we were focused on the technical challenges. Um, and uh, but now, now where I am on the outside, and I can you know sit back and look a little bit more at the structural and systemic issues at play here. No, I mean, all the telltale signs were there in 2016 with claims of a rigged election. So this was this was imminently predictable. In fact, there were groups that that saw this coming and and helped prepare for it. And and what did you did you anticipate that Donald Trump himself would be angry about the statement? Sure. Right. I mean, I mean, his his campaign, his lawyers, some of his bunch of his supporters, his advocates, his proxies we're all talking about how there was massive fraud in this state or that state, or, you know, they, the, their favorite kind of, you know, fallback is they were just asking questions. It, it was, it was critically important that the people that know how elections work, and those are state and local officials who joined in on that statement, by the way, and they, they're actually the ones that drafted it and issued it. I just repeated it and retweeted it. Um, it's important that those that are, that, that have that firsthand experience with the process were the ones saying, look, here's the ground truth. Here's what's happening out there. Um, so as to whether I was surprised that the former president was upset by it, I, you know. Were you surprised? You know, I've shared some of this experience. Were you surprised that it seems to have been the reason for your firing? No, I, I was. So it, I was shocked in the moment, but not overall surprised. I think, you know, there, there's, there's a certain philosophy where, um, if you accept your mortality, um, you make a different set of decisions. <laughs> what took you so long to get fired? Some people managed to, to accomplish that in seven weeks. I know it's like I'm almost talking to someone that pulled that off. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, we were just focused on the mission. We didn't get engaged in politics, and we had a, you know, we generally approach things not generally, but universally approach things in a bipartisan or or even nonpartisan manner, whether it was cybersecurity in general or election security. And we, you know, I I, I told the team. So this is CISA, and as we were running up uh, to the election, I think there were a lot of nervous people. Like, what's going to happen if, if, if we get, um, you know, kind of under the 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 thumb of of the White House? And I said, you know, there are kind of two things, or at least my management philosophy was, you know, for this agency, for CISA to be successful, there are five P's that we need to focus on: people, policy, programs, public affairs, and politics. I said that last P, politics, actually, that's not your problem. That's my problem. So you guys worry about the first four P's and I'll worry about the fifth P. And I, I think that gave some 
comfort to the team that, that, you know, as a Senate confirmed director of an agency that I was looking out for them, that we were going to get the mission done. You know, there's some, there's some disconnect. It seems when we talk about election security, integrity, whatever phrase you want to use, there's a disconnect between the way that the world seems to be moving in modern life, which is increasing technology, digital technology, using your devices, you know, during the COVID uh, pandemic, I've taken to using Apple Pay, contactless. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't take the receipts because you're worried that, you know, at least in the early days, should you be touching something that was touched by someone else? But in the in the voting and election universe, it seems like, for various reasons, which it would be it would be wonderful for you to go through them and explain, we're going in the opposite direction. We're going more and more away from technology, perhaps in part because that's the way that people will get comfort. We're doing things in the same way we did them 100 years ago, paper ballots, et cetera, that that's what gives them confidence when in other areas of modern life, we're moving in favor of technology and away from paper. Does that make any sense? No, it absolutely does. And and I think there's a, a key difference here between voting where you're, uh, you know, insured a secret ballot where whom you voted for can't be traced back to you. And the flip side of digital technologies, you know, your bank account, for instance, um, where the you know you're seeking an immutability of the transaction, and this is where everybody's like, we need the blockchain. Like, no, look, I mean, you the the whole point about online banking, for instance, is the bank knows exactly how much money you have and what transactions you're making. That and they tie it back to you uniquely with an identifier. That is not how elections should work under the current tradition of a secret ballot, and that's why I am convinced that we are probably decades away from any sort of meaningful scale, you know, deployed at scale digital voting technology like mobile phones. And, and the other thing is like, look, it's it's also, it limits access because yes, you and I might have access to the latest, you know, iPhone with super, you know, security features, but there are a lot of people out there that aren't even on secure phones that use, um, you know, flip phones. There are actually members of Congress that still use flip phones, but, but the, you know, they're, there are marginalized communities that just don't have access to the same technology. So whatever we do here, we need to make sure that there's a level playing f- field um, and, and it make it easy to vote. Is the biggest issue at this moment then, not necessarily how the, the voting takes place on election day or in the days leading up to election day, if there's early voting, but the ability to audit later in a way that will convince people who are increasingly suspicious of elections that the election was kosher. So I mean, (laughs) I didn't mean I didn't mean to to provoke that sound. It just drives me crazy because (laughs) you know everything you're hearing in the kind of the 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 aftermath of the Arizona you know air quote audit here, where you're seeing it you know between Georgia trying to you know audit the the um, the ballots in Fulton County, the four counties in Texas, this request for audits in Florida, Michigan, Pennsylvania. It could go on. There are there are best practices. There are standards. There are professionals that conduct and administer um, uh, post-election audits already, and they they do it in a transparent way. Um, that's the, the, with bipartisan representation. They, they aren't, you know, from obviously biased contractors that make up their processes on the fly and don't provide meaningful access and transparency to the fourth estate. It's, you know, there are processes. Stop calling these stupid things audits. They're not, they're, they're, you know, partisan inquests at best. Yeah. But, but, but the question remains, in other words, 
you have an undeniable trend now. I'll, I'll right. not put words in your mouth, but I'll speak for myself. Of people like Donald Trump urging on his supporters not to believe any election, not to believe any election result that was adverse to him. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have increased. I'm not saying it's legitimate. I'm not saying it's done in good faith. But you have increased suspicion and disbelief in election results that are unfavorable to Donald Trump. That is going to be true in 2022 yep. in the midterms and 2024. And, and given that rise in suspicion, whether it's good faith or, or well-founded or not, does that, to your mind, necessitate some different way of dealing with elections and election security in the future, which, which is not an issue of technology and integrity per se, but it's about dealing with the citizenship problem we have yeah. where people just don't want to believe you. You know, you, you go and you cast your ballot and say, well, I don't believe you. Like, where's the proof? Where's the proof? Where's the proof? Does it necessitate a change? I, look, I think, I think we, we've kind of lost our way from a civics education perspective. And, and by the way, I'm not naive enough to think that this is going to fix everything. I'm just kind of giving some of the, the, the context setting for, I think, why we're where we are. So just civics in general have fallen off the books. People just don't engage with their local officials. And so we've got, and we've somehow arrived at a point where everyone believes in part, you know, influenced by the president, the former president rather saying, you know, they, the voting should be done that night and all the counting should be done the night of the election, which is not, nor has it ever been that way, right? Mail-in ballots, ballots, uh, you know, overseas ballots from service members, they come in after the election day. So we, I think for one, we've got to get back to the basics of communications and education and I think this past election has really opened the eyes of a lot of election officials on how they need to be much more proactive, much more aggressive on the mechanics of voting and what the timelines look like. Um, so, so I think I think that's that's uh, step step one. Step two is continue to push towards eradication of those machines that that don't have a paper trail, and then full fifty state plus territory. Uh, post-election pre-certification audits that will will again establish the the facts of the election and that the initial count was consistent with the you know the ultimately certified count. I think those are just two two quick steps. But the third, look, the biggest problem here to to your point is 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 the former guy. <laughs> you know, former President Trump continues to baselessly uh, promote these conspiracy theories that, that there was a, and look, he's not the craziest about it. Right. I mean, Sidney Powell stuff is out of control, but, but the, you know, this is a steady state. He goes to Lynn these, Wood, by the way, Lynn Wood is now making uh, waves by, by saying outright and in public that nine yep. 11 was staged. He's a truther. Right. I mean, it just, it, it, but look, ultimately I think that is going to, you know, he, that's going to agitate and activate the fever swamp. We have to kind of assume that that a, a non-zero percentage, probably <laughs> closer to twenty percent, if not more, slightly more, of the American population are just irretrievably gone. They they will not accept facts. It might be a lot more. I mean, this is the problem, Chris. Yeah, it used to be the fever swamp folks were a small percentage, and for good or ill, depending on your perspective, maybe they didn't have a lot of political leverage. But I've seen some polls, I don't have it in front of me, that suggest that 70% of Republicans, and I don't know what percentage of the whole population that is, but 70% of the Republicans believe that Donald Trump won the election. So now you're starting to get into, into crazy numbers 
And, and I don't know that that's going to abate anytime soon. And I guess one of the things that you and I are talking about is, is how through procedure and process and technology and election voting systems, do we begin to you know, eat away at that and erode that lack of confidence? Maybe it's not possible. Are you optimistic? You know, I think we can round the edges off. Um, I think we have to continue pushing through, like I said, on the technology side and on the practices and the communications and the transparency side. But what, what's really so upsetting to me is that there are kind of like four levels of government involvement with election administration, election confidence. You know, it starts down at the state and local level in the legislatures. And I think that's where you're really starting to see things unravel, like some of the the state senators in in Arizona, some of the state officials or, you know, elected officials in, in Texas and elsewhere that, you know, it's politically advantageous for them to promote this garbage because it activates their base. They get fundraising, they get voters. Um, and, and that kind of like pol- that, that illiberal political cynicism, we, we've got to figure out a way where, where that's, that doesn't work in, in their favor anymore. You know, my hope is that just the general voter um, uh, will, will call it like, you know, recognize it for what it is. The, the second level is, is those folks that are elected into the executive branch at the state level. So secretaries of state, for instance, you have uh, election deniers, you know, stop the stealers running for secretary of state in Georgia, in, in Arizona and elsewhere. And, and you're putting them in a position if they're elected to actually be, you know, have the pin on certifying results, what's going to happen in 24, right? And then, and then you start leveling up to the, the the federal level, and you've got the the Congress, where you know you, you continue to hear um, from elect, particularly in the House. And though I am concerned, there's some more um, radical uh, types that that may be uh, successful in a Senate seat. But you have members of the House that push this stuff, and so so it's really a layer. There is no single option, uh, single uh, single solution here. And the, what what particularly makes it complicated at the federal level, particularly with the elected officials and serving in the House is, is the speech and debate clause. They hide behind that. And it, it makes it really hard other than every two, four, six years um, to, to hold them accountable for the things they say. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Chris Krebs after this. Support for Stay Tuned comes from American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, a podcast from Wondery. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon, a diverse group of abolitionists began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, not the senator, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. And in the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by those committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Facing terrible violence, retribution, or even death if caught, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states for those enslaved people who risked the journey, and even went as far north as Canada, where their freedom was assured. You can follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to this season of American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery Plus. Support for this show comes from Indeed. 
Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hearing you talk, it occurs to me, this is true in other contexts as well. Do we have too many election systems? I'm not sure it can be changed. You know, the Constitution leaves time, place, and manner of the setting of elections to the states. So that's the federalism system that we have. But would it be easier if all the states and localities had a common set of principles about voting and mechanisms for voting? How much does that play a role in confusion and in suspicion? So there are a set of you know, general timelines they have to meet under federal law and uh, statute, you know, seating the Electoral Congress all the way back, um, you know, through certification and safe harbor deadline of, you know, December 14th or whatever it was this past year. But from a from a tactical operational boots on the ground administering elections, it really does change. It does depend. It you know, state by state. If you've once, if you've seen one state's requirements for elections, you've, you've, you've seen one state and it's based on geography on, you know, rural communities about urban density, you know, trying to administer election in a highly rural or, or even, you know, just like Oregon, for instance, it's going to be so much different, um, than, than Rhode Island or Massachusetts. So I'm, I'm not convinced that there needs to be a single, um, approach to election administration in the U.S. because I just don't think it would work. Um, but but we certainly need much clearer guidelines on technology. We need uh, more stringent cybersecurity requirements out of the Election Assistance Commission and some of the certifications that they issue for for equipment. Um, but but you know this really just comes down to it's like we've got to be able to penalize and hold accountable those that spread nonsense and lies about uh, the outcome of an election. And, and hopefully we can do it in some way other than companies who work in elections and make machines suing for defamation, right? That it takes seems not long. to be the best way to regulate. So, I mean, this, this is issue. actually one of those, those things I think we, we, as a kind of an election security and administration community, need to take a hard look at some of the lessons learned from the 2020 election. And, you know, I don't, I've, I've, I've talked to the Dominion folks about this, but I just, I don't, you know, what other legal remedies were available to them in October or November where they could have sought, sought some sort of, you know, injunctive relief um, against some of the people that were talking about, you know, dead Venezuelan dictators that had compromised their systems. But it's fraught to do that. I mean, they're not DOJ and DOJ has, you know, prudential rules and, and, and policies on this and guidelines, but it's still pretty fraught for a company like Dominion to be bringing preemptively some big, hype lawsuit 
in the days leading up to an election, don't you think? No, you're you're absolutely right. But I, I think we we have to kind of test these waters. But look, so they have filed suit against, you know, various individuals associated with the campaign, media outlets. You know, some of the individuals are judgment proof. Like they're not going to get any money out of some of these people. Um, but even if they do get to a resolution and they have, you know, at least verbally indicated that that they're not going to settle, that they're going to take this to to the, you know, the very end. That's two plus years out, maybe. And and by then the damage has been done. And you know, they've already talked about, you know, in some of their legal filings about how they've lost contracts at the state or county level because the election officials are scared, because they're like, our people, you know, aren't gonna vote if they say see Dominion because they bought that that bill of goods that that the the former president and, and his uh, acolytes were selling. Let me try to ask a question whose answer maybe is implied in what you've been saying, but let me ask it in this way. Is there, is there a system that can be devised for voting in any particular jurisdiction that is um, human proof? In other words, is every system of voting ultimately going to be reliant upon the good faith and integrity of the humans, whether that's election officials or the secretary of state or the state legislature? Is it, is it ultimately going to depend on the good faith and integrity of those people, or can you do something to insulate from those people? So from a practical perspective, you know, you want to eliminate single points of failure as much as possible. And there's a concept in election administration as it, you know, relates to technology of, of software independence. And, And basically that means you never want technology or hardware, software or hardware to be a single point of failure in your election process, that you have redundancies, you have checks and controls throughout the process, uh, you know, front to back, um, that will either identify, detect, mitigate, or you know, just flat out stop um, any sort of you know compromise of of uh, of the system. That that goes from a policy perspective as well. You know, we have checks and balances throughout the process at the state level and at the federal level. I think they, they keep us from having to be highly reliant upon a single individual like, you know, the vice president of the United States counting the ballot, you know, counting the slates or, or whatever. Um, so I, th- I think those processes are in place. I just don't know if we the, the, the biggest problem here is that the big lie about how the election was stolen, all the things that could have been done in the Eastman memo and elsewhere. It, they never had to worry about being accurate or truthful or actually having the law on their side. It's, it's, it's Gary Kasparov has t- talked about this, but it's the flood of lies. It's asymmetry. They're not trying to win you over. They're trying to get you to lose a per- the perception of what's real and what's true. And if they do that, you, you're a lost cause. So I think your answer then is, which is disturbing, but not unexpected, is that we can focus a lot. On, on policies, on rules, on statutes. But if, but if the folks who are responsible at the end of the day for saying yay or nay are not good people, we're going to have a problem. That's how it's always been, right? Yeah. I mean, I say that, it seems obvious, but I feel like that's a missed point. Yeah, I mean, look, some folks. I mean, the reason we've gotten as a country 250 some odd years down the road is because we had good faith actors for the most part for the majority of that time. Yes, there have been you know, some, some free radicals and those that were of a more liberal, um, approach or view of viewpoint. Um, but it's really disconcerting kind of this, this orthogonal departure from liberal democracies that we're seeing out of a pretty significant 
chunk of the Republican Party right now. And, and that used to be less Kraken. Yeah. <laughs> there was less Kraken. I think that's the solution, less Kraken. So more. So, I know what your answer is going to be, but I, I want you to flesh it out a little bit more because a, a particular technological leap has been suggested by a number of people, but included among them is Andrew Yang, hmm. formerly ran for president, formerly ran for mayor of New York City, who said, wouldn't it be great if we could vote from our phones? <laughs> he tweeted that your response was um, Danny DeVito. You know, the, the equivalent of an, of an eye roll. Uh, Representative Eric Swalwell also got into the mix saying, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could figure out a way for people to vote on their phones? Could you be specific as to why that's a bad idea in your view? Look, I, I get the, the, um, the interest and the willingness and the kind of excitement about like, can't we just do this technology thing where the, most technologically advanced society on the face of the earth. Um, but, but, but again, you know, we are the technologies that we use today for banking and other online transactions are not set up for, um, you know, again, the, the concept of a secret ballot, you there's metadata, there's so many other indicators and little pieces of, of digital exhaust to say associated with how we operate that, that ultimately a would would kind of do not kind of but would would make it really hard to do a secret balloting process um and then but but, but what but can I ask can I ask sure. a question about that because I don't understand the technology as well as as you and other people I mean anonymity is needed for many things that we do including uh electronic medical records and and maybe this is a terrible analogy but we do accept some risk that those things can be hacked and it'd be embarrassing for large populations of people. But as we get further in the modern world and for ease and for treatment purposes, particularly in a pandemic, we've seen a rise in electronic communication of, of medical information, protected, sensitive health information. How, how is voting different from that? Maybe that's a silly way of putting it. Well, I, look, I mean, anyway, you cut it. Some healthcare provider still has your records, your name and your medical history on it. So let's put this into a practical context, right? So let's say we use some sort of digital voting that associates your identity, even if it's a unique identifier that could potentially down the road be tied back to you, but they have your voting history. And, and let's say you trust, going back to your point about human proofing, you you may trust the secretary of state today, but but what if some you know, nut job gets elected in there and then they have the ability to look up your voting history and look actually not just if you voted, but, but whom you voted for down the slate. And, you know, and there's a market for that. And there's a market for that information. Well, not just from a, from a, you know, uh, from a, uh, a campaigning perspective, but, but also like, you know, don't discount the fact that political retribution is a a possible thing. I mean, it has happened before, not just here, but obviously elsewhere. So, but, but, you know, again, what, what, you know, as long as we're committed to a secret ballot system, there are ways to do this um, where, uh, you know, using physical media, you know, physical format media paper um, that is uh, that can separate the identity from the vote. And yes, there, there are ways, likely ways to do this tech with technology, but the installation base, so that means that the 330 million or however many eligible voters that are out there in the United States will not have the same access to the technology needed to do this in a secure way. Maybe 10% would. And, and that is not for nothing. 
and, and am I correct that <clears throat> am I correct that, that no voting system that aspires to be safe and have integrity should be hardwired to the internet? That's a- absolutely the best practice. I think um, the uh, the Election Assistance Commission has some guidance on that. CISA has some guidance on that. My old agency has some guidance. But yeah, I mean, you don't need to be connected to the internet. There, there's no requirement for most applications, certainly for the voting machine that you cast your vote on. There's, there's virtually no scenario where that would be uh, useful. There are some arguments on the tabulator side where you want to be able to modem out uh, the unofficial results. And that's why, again, it's important to have paper because even if there was a connection and even if there was an attempted con- uh, intrusion or uh, a successful compromise, you still have the paper records that you can go back and audit over and over. Georgia, they counted three times, right. three times. And guess what? Hoping it's going to be different. They were consistent. So so I think that's, yeah. you know, we, we that's the part that, um, that's again, so critical that the ability can, to conduct evidence-based elections um, to maintain confidence, it, it has to be the first imperative. So last question on this, and then I want to talk about some other stuff. If you could start from scratch or, or build a, an election system in a state, uh, catastrophic Krebs, all you, what are the, what are the, the, the main principles and mechanisms that would make it, in your mind, not just the safest and most secure, but be perceived to be the safest and most secure? Well, I, you know, there's a difference here, right, between in practical terms um, what is safe and secure, and then what the narrative has developed around uh, of, of safe and secure. I mean, both are important. That's why I keep yeah. asking both. Right. Yeah. I, so, I mean, I, just, matters. I think just from a practical perspective, it's it's maximum paper. Um, with very, very clear um, uh, and effective ballot design. And that's something that we we tend to um, not talk a lot about. But they're, you know, not all ballots in across the country are designed and configured the same way. And that, that's even at the state level, at the county level. And they, I mean, you can have precinct level differences in, you know, s- school board, you're voting on the same ballot, and at least in the Commonwealth of Virginia, same ballot may be on the back side that you're you're voting for the president, and that's going to change. And so, you know, we, it's really about good practices on designing the ballot, having very clear processes for how they're getting counted, good chain of custody, post election audits, risk limiting audits, you know, scientifically based audits um, to uh, confirm the outcome before certification. So it's not after, but it's before certification, so you can confirm and you know, transparency in the, in the canvassing process, just to make sure that you've, you've done the things properly to ensure that every person that was registered and eligible to vote, um, was able to do so. And, and that there are no sort of, you know, uh, uh, departures from, from the norm. Now that's, that's different though, because now you hear all these things about how mail-in voting is, um, you know, uh, susceptible to massive voter fraud, despite, all the available evidence um, and this, the additional controls that are in place where, hey, you can request a ballot, um, but but you may not use it. You can go in and vote in person. And, and then they're just, you know, signature verification and all those other things that we've just kind of, we've lost the narrative through that flood of lies about, you know, what the things that matter in the process. And we've kind of been snowed over by some of the, the grifters. It's not even the lies. 
It's the willing belief in those lies mm-hmm. in the face of contrary evidence. You know, so, so it almost it almost doesn't matter. I mean, this distinction I keep drawing between what is safe and secure and what is perceived to be safe and secure. And I think for some subset of folks, at least at this moment, there's no bridging that. You know, n- nothing you can say to them, and this is because the lie has been perpetrated, but also, you know, willingly believed. There's nothing you can say to them that will convince them that Trump lost Georgia. You can count it 94 times. You can have Sidney Powell can be disbarred. doesn't matter. So I, I would actually go and look at, again, at, at Arizona and their recent, recently completed, again, air quotes here, audit. Um, that, that Frauded, some people call right, it. Right, that, that found <laughs> that, um, you know, in fact, <laughs> Trump had fewer votes than initially thought and Biden had more. And, and then, so the pivots are, are remarkable, right? The pivot by the Stop the Steal crowd are like, oh, the Cyber Ninjas team was pressured to release that report or some other party came in. So, so now the, the true believers of Stop the Steal have turned on Senate, Arizona Senate President, uh, State Senate President Karen Fan, and, and they're, they're like, oh, they're not strong enough. They were intimidated. The deep state's right. gotten to them. So right. like- there's, well, always someone, there's always someone you can scapegoat for not giving you the result that you want. Yeah, well, that, yes. And then, but, but I do think through part of this, we continue, as I said, we're rounding off edges. We're chipping away at the people that are either on the fence or kind of teeter-tottering over into the fever swamp. And we are seeing, even in the QAnon movement, we're seeing people like, enough. This is too much. You haven't delivered any results. And it's, it's, I'm done. It's, it's, I've lost family over this. It's time to move on. Right. So we face a lot of issues, a lot of threats on the cyber front. And I wonder if you have a thought about the, I, I raise this issue from time to time and I worked in the Congress and I, I, I watch members of Congress in the House and the Senate when they conduct hearings. And sometimes you see this in the legislation they write that they're not necessarily so sophisticated about technology mm-hmm. and about the cyber threats. And people get terms wrong and, and sometimes uh, you know, tech executives come before Congress and it's a cakewalk for them because many members are just not fluent. They're just not savvy. Do you worry that, that members of Congress don't have the sophistication needed to deal with the threat? I have no idea what you're talking anyone. about. This is very impressed. But no, look, I mean, it, there are there are people um, that take advantage of that. Uh, that that you know the ability to throw a you know hundred mile an hour high tech fastball, and there's no there's no possible follow up, and it, you, you see it all the time. I think it's important um, that we we ensure that the technical sophistication expertise is resident in the committee staffs and in the personal staffs. I think the tech fellow program um, that, that is just reemerging in Congress right now. Uh, I've, in fact, I have a, um, a current employee that is um, uh, applying into that program. It, it just gives that, it raises the bar in terms of understanding, helps craft better policy, um, kind of can call the lobbyists out for you know the BS when they when they try to lay it down. I, I, I think that is probably one of the most critical um, you know investments that Congress can make. You know, but but on the on the uh, the elected official, you know, I, I can't see absent you know maybe the Bay Area uh, and maybe you know parts of, um, of of the Pacific Northwest or the Seattle area 
where a you know technology savvy member of Congress has any sort of kind of electoral differentiator, they would get him into Congress more. So I think we got to work it at the staff level. Yeah. Although staff don't get to ask the questions at the hearings. This is an example I use over and over again, and maybe it's changed since he said it, but Lindsey Graham said not that long ago, and he's not a, whatever you think of him, he's a smart guy. He said just recently in, in the last few years that he had never sent an email. It's hard to understand when we're talking about level of sophistication how a body of, of lawmakers, some of whom have literally never sent an email, can understand some of these very, very, very much more complicated things, right? Yeah. And I mean, I think there are reasons for for things like that, not sending emails. I mean, part of it's operational security, right? You don't want to put anything of your words. Look, I mean, he said it. I think he said it, in fairness to him, in the context of saying he was ahead of his time because he can't get hacked. His yeah. emails are not going to be <laughs> on drudge. Yep. Because he doesn't send them. But also that they, they have staff do everything for them, right? But but to your to, to just to your larger point, yes, there is an absolute knowledge gap in how technology works. But but I mean the, the that's not even the worst part of it, right? It's it, it yes on the Congress and the regulatory side, but it's just the, the average person has no idea how these things work that they're rolling out into their homes and, and how to maintain them and what sort of data is being collected on a daily basis and what sorts of things they're willingly turning over just to get the latest app or little widget. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, the best example here is, right, is Facebook um, with, well, there, there are a thousand examples here with Facebook, but the one, the one I like is um, all the, the, the quizzes, right? Like, tell me, you know, your first car when you were a kid and your favorite yeah. dog and all that. It's like, people, this is, this, <laughs> this is a, a, a social engineering experiment. They're collecting information on you and building a profile, you know, and bad people can do bad stuff with all that information. Hey, today, just tell me the first four digits of your social. Yeah. Whoa. Raise your hand if you're a January birthday. It's like stuff like two, that. Tuesday, <laughs> two days yeah. later, give us the last few digits of your social. Oh, I see. Chris Krebs, thanks for spending time with us. It's been great. Hey, Preet. Thanks so much. My conversation with Chris Krebs continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. So I want to end the show this week with a bit of news that's important to me personally, which will become obvious in a moment, but also more importantly, is consequential for New York and indeed for the country. And it's about my old office, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. You may not realize this, but the last time someone was Senate confirmed to that position was me over 12 years ago. And after I was fired, there were, of course, competent, excellent people who've been in charge of that office. But I think it makes a difference if someone is actually presidentially appointed and Senate confirmed and is a permanent person to be in that position. So as of Tuesday night of this week, we have a Senate confirmed U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York for the first time in a number of years. That U.S. attorney is Damien Williams, who I know very well. In fact, a number of years ago when I ran the office, I interviewed him, the team interviewed him, and I hired him. As I told the New York Times when they were writing a profile about Damien, he was an absolute no-brainer hire. He's incredibly smart. He's incredibly talented. He clerked on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals for then-Judge Merrick Garland, who wonder what happened to that guy, but it should mean for a good relationship. 
between SDNY and Maine Justice, because the Attorney General and Damien have known each other for a long time. Then Damien went on to clerk for Justice John Paul Stevens, came to the SDNY office as a young person, immediately shined, is an excellent, excellent trial lawyer, and eventually was promoted to head the securities fraud unit, which of course is a difficult job and handles very sophisticated cases. And he'll be sworn in soon as the next U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. And I just wanted to express my pride in Damien, my happiness that the office will have a permanent leader. I think the office will be in incredibly good hands because Damien has good judgment. He's open-minded. He'll be tough, but fair, understands the traditions of doing justice. I should also mention, not to be remiss, that there is also a new Senate-confirmed U.S. attorney in the, you know, I guess, rival office, the Eastern District of New York, Brian Peace, who served in that office some years ago, has long been a partner at the esteemed law firm of Cleary Gottlieb in New York City, was also confirmed on Tuesday evening. He's also a great and talented lawyer and will lead that office well. Now, both men have a lot on their plates, some we know about because of public reporting and because of court proceedings. In the Southern District of New York, Jelaine Maxwell, however you pronounce her name, is set to go on trial. Damien will be overseeing that. There's the ongoing saga of the investigation of the former U.S. attorney himself, Rudy Giuliani. That's a sensitive investigation and no doubt a complicated and difficult one. Damien will be overseeing that as well. And then there are probably all sorts of cases that you and I know nothing about, investigations that are at the early stages. And then there will be matters that come up over time. New York is still the target of terrorist attacks. Wall Street is still there with lots and lots of frauds and deceptions waiting to happen. So Damien has a lot on his plate. Same with Brian Peace in the Eastern District, among other things. Notably, for example, the investigation and prosecuting of Tom Barrack, one of the former associates of President Trump. Both Damien and Brian are excellent picks, recommended by my former boss, Senator Chuck Schumer, for their excellence and for their talent and for their judgment. And I just wanted to say to the people of both of those offices, you're very lucky to have them. I wish them luck and the fortitude to do the right thing in the right way for the right reasons in every decision they make, and also on occasion, the strength to withstand criticism with grace. Good luck, congratulations, Damien Williams and Brian Peace. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Chris Krebs. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. The Cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Jennifer Korn, Chris Boylan, and Sean Walsh. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.